go ahead and turn, as I said, to Philippians chapter 2, after Galatians and Ephesians. We're going to spend three weeks in verses 1 through 11. So as we've gone through 1 Corinthians, we've taken big chunks of New Testament here. We're going to kind of zero in on just a few verses at a time. I'm going to read all of verses 1 through 11 in this passage on the incarnation of Jesus Christ and the humility of our Savior and what it means for us. I'm going to read the whole passage, but we'll focus on just the first four verses this morning. Philippians 2, 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God and the Father. Winston Churchill, the former Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, once remarked about the humble state of one of his political opponents. With a backhanded compliment, he said, The man was modest. He was a modest man who has a good deal to be modest about. And truthfully, that quote describes all of us. Modest people who have a great deal to be modest about. We do not have much ground for boasting or arrogance. But that doesn't stop us. If we are honest, we often consider ourselves more highly than we ought, and even more highly than others. There's an author by the name of Brant Hansen who recently cited a study from the University of London that found that 93% of individuals believe themselves to be morally superior to the average person. Now, do that math, that is impossible for 93% of people to be superior to the average person morally. But that's how most people consider themselves. We consider ourselves to be morally superior to others. Uh, we have a natural, innate tendency to think of ourselves more highly than we ought, and this is actually particularly true of Americans. I may have cited this study before, but I'll cite it again because it's one of my favorite things I've ever seen. There is a study that uh, surveyed Americans and Britons, British people, comparing their belief and their ability to win a fight with an animal. An unarmed fight with various animals... The comparing American and British responses, and across the board, in every instance, Americans had more confidence in their own ability to defeat that animal. So, for example, 18% of Britons felt they could defeat an eagle unarmed, but 30% of Americans felt they would win. 45% of British people said they would defeat a goose. 61% of Americans felt like they could defeat a goose. Maybe my favorite stat was that 2% of British people thought they could defeat a grizzly bear. 
Americans, 6%. Which is insane to me. That 6% of people think they could take a grizzly bear. I mean, some of my other favorites. 8% across the board of Americans thought they could defeat an elephant or a lion or a gorilla compared to 2% of British people. So... I would say the 2% of British people are insane, and then the 6 or 8% of Americans. So the point is that we tend to have a little bit more pride in ourselves. We think of ourselves more highly than we ought, which is why we need passages like Philippians 2. Over the next couple of weeks, we'll focus on these 11 verses, which show us the humility of our Lord Jesus Christ, particularly in his incarnation, in his becoming human. And show us his divine humility. And each week, as we survey this, we're going to ask one key question about humility each week. So for this week, just in the first four verses, the key question I want to ask about humility is, what is the reason for Christ-like humility? What is the reason for Christ-like humility? According to Philippians 2, and particularly in these four verses here, what is the reason for Christ-like humility? The question will be answered, and we'll see actually that Paul's answer in this case, in this instance, is unity. That is Paul's agenda in this section of Philippians. He wants the church to be unified and to walk in unity. His desire is that the Philippian church would be a church of humble unity. He, he said in just a few verses previously, in chapter 1, verse 27, that he wants to see the church standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He wants them standing in one spirit to be united. And, and that's something we need as a church today. I keep hearing this theme over and over as I talk to other pastors and ministry leaders and hear things on uh, podcasts and all that, that a trend amongst churches now which is probably true in all sorts of institutions, is that there is a lot of fighting and division. A lot of differences of opinion, a lot of people getting frustrated with one another, and people dividing and fighting, and therefore people are discouraged, more contentious, less united. So this is a word for us at this time, that we would be united, and the reason for humility here is for unity. We'll explore that as we break up uh, these four verses into three sections. It's actually one long sentence in the Greek, which often what Paul does. He has a long run-on sentence, and we break it up just to make it readable in our English. But the central command of these four verses is found in verse 2, and that's where I want to focus first. We'll skip verse 1 for now and go on verse 2. The central command of this long run-on sentence is Paul asking the Philippian church to make my joy complete. All of this has to do with them making Paul's joy complete. We'll see that in verse 2, and here that joy is the sentiment that requests unity. That's how I've labeled verse 2, the sentiment that requests unity. Unity. Paul wants joy for the church and for him, so in that sentiment he requests unity. Look at verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So as I said there, Paul's central command here is make my joy complete. That's what he wants for them. He wants joy. And particularly his joy, he, he's already rejoiced over the Philippians in the, letter, in the letter. 
In chapter 1, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for all of you making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So he's already written to the Philippians, and and in this letter he's already said, I rejoice over you, I thank my God for you. But my joy could be even more complete, it could be even more full, if you would stand in unity together. What I love about this is Paul is speaking to the, the church in Philippi, to the Philippian church, and he's saying, I would rejoice if you benefit. Like, he would rejoice over their good. That is what would make Paul's joy complete if they would do well and be united together. And anybody who's a parent, anybody who's coached a sports team, anybody who's led a group understands the sentiment. I would feel so much better if you all would get along. Right? We, we understand this as parents. Make my joy complete. And be united together. He's a pastor who wants his church to love one another. These are the things that keep ministers up at night when they see fighting, division, hostility. when we see those who take communion together, confessing the unity of the body of Christ, then leaving the table and being at odds with one another, gripped in hostility and arrogance and bitterness and unforgiveness. Paul wants none of that for the Philippian church. He wants his joy to be complete by their unity. And he describes this unity kind of in a fourfold description. It's all getting at the same idea, but he describes it in four ways. as being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Being in the same mind speaks to having like the same core convictions. Have the same gospel priorities. Be united in your belief and your conviction. The same thought and heart to the things of God. Having the same love. Have a love given by God that you love the same things, that you're about the same things, that the same things bring you joy, that your affections, desires are in line with one another. He says being in full accord. It's actually one Greek word that means in one spirit. Be united in spirit together. I think we know what it means to be united in spirit. You meet somebody and just instantly you kind of click. Has that ever happened to you? We call them kindred spirits. Or as soon as you begin talking, you think, I, I get along with this person. We see things the same way. That's what Paul wants for the church, for you to be kindred spirits. And lastly, of one mind which speaks to having the same purpose and direction, going the same way. All of it being about being united as believers. It's the kind of thing that doesn't happen in a community unless there's something transcendent that unites all of them. That's how Paul describes unity here. That is different, as we know, than uniformity. Paul's not asking for a uniformity. Uniformity is when everybody is exactly the same. That's not unity. Unity is not when everyone is exactly the same. Unity is when different people are working and living together toward the same thing. Unity is when people who are very different from one another actually come together and are united together. We know God doesn't want uniformity. We'll get there whenever we return to 1 Corinthians, go back to 1 Corinthians 12, it talks about the different members of the church being different parts of the body. And Paul makes the point, like, if the body were full of eyes, wouldn't be a great body. Right? If we have a body just full of big toes, 
Like that body is not functional, not operational. There must be diversity within a body. There must be different parts that look and think kind of differently that come together and are united in purpose. So God loves that diversity, but he wants that diversity united towards the same thing. Diversity is only useful if it's diversity bound by a supernatural unity. We know the value of unity in National Geographic in May of 1987. There is a feature on Arctic wolves, and author L. David Mech wrote about a pack of seven wolves who were stalking several musk oxen calves. When the wolves approached the calves, the, the calves hid behind the adult musk oxen, and the adult musk oxen actually grouped them together in the middle and then formed a ring around them so that if any wolf got close, they would kick their legs and deal a damaging blow. So the adults were protecting these young calves from the wolves that were stalking them. And there was a long standoff. And eventually, one of the muskox got tired and left the group, which caused others to panic. And then they started dividing the little groups, trying to protect each other. And that is when the wolves struck and saw their opportunity. The adults fled and not a single calf was left alive. It's a wonderful picture of the strength of unity and what happens when a part breaks off and is no longer united. It's the same thing that happens when disunity enters into a church. A church that was at one point united in heart and mind, and then a single group says, we think we have a better way and then they break off, and then panic happens, and then different camps are formed, and each individual camp is more exposed and more defenseless as a smaller group than they would be together, and they're easily picked off by the enemy. The devil loves a divided church. It makes his work easier. It makes the church's mission harder. Because the church is spending all their time and energy trying to figure out how to get people to get along with one another, how to address hurt feelings, how to heal relationships, how to mend differences, how to stop people from fighting in their own way. All the while, the church isn't on mission reaching lost people because they're too busy fighting among themselves. It's why Paul is concerned that the Philippian church stay united in love. Again, every coach of a sports team knows this. If you have a bunch of people running different plays, it's not going to work well. They have to be each using their gifts, using their position towards the same end. That's why a body can't function if one leg is trying to walk while the other is trying to run. You can do that as an exercise when you get home. See what happens if you try and make one leg run and one leg walk. It won't work very well but please send videos if you try it. (laughs) The church can't function unless it's united. And beyond that, there is a theological reason to be united, not just practical. Beyond just the practical reason to be united, that you can't function unless you're united, there's a theological reason for church unity. And that theological reason is that God is one. We have one God as the Shema says. There's one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. 
the three persons of the one God is existing forever in unity, in harmony, in intimacy, and love. And if that is our God, if that's who God is, a united, triune God, then if we are to be his people, we must also be united and reflect that unity. There's a theological reason for unity and the practical, and it's why Paul wants unity for the church, that it would make his joy complete. That's a sentiment that requests unity. But how do we get there? If Paul wants unity for the church, how is the church going to be united? And he answers that question in verses 3 to 4. And the key element to establishing unity is humility. That's the posture that promotes unity. The posture that promotes unity is humility, the necessary ingredient for a united church. The posture that promotes unity. Verses 3 through 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So these two verses, this last half of Paul's long sentence, are about humility. And here Paul talks about things he wants the church to avoid and things he wants the church to do. First, they are to avoid selfish ambition, arrogance, or self-interest. Avoid these attitudes. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Actually, and there's something interesting here. Uh, this is our English translation, which is a good translation. In the Greek, there's actually no verb there in the beginning of verse 3. So in the Greek, it just says nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. We supply the verb to, in order for it to make sense to us in English. But the way it reads in Greek, Paul says, Make my joy complete, being of the same mind, nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. And it strikes me that, I think the point is that there, this is more than just about what we do. Paul's not only talking about not doing anything arrogant, Paul's talking about not being arrogant. Like, don't think in an arrogant way. Don't think from selfish ambition. It's not even just about actions, about what you do, but who you are internally. Nothing whatsoever from selfish ambition or conceit. So we ask, like, what is selfish ambition and conceit? And I think we know it when we see it or do it. It's when we use others for our own gain, when we use the church for our interests. It's the person who comes to church to see what they can get out of it and out of other people. And they come away from church asking, what did I receive from my experience at church? It's the person who doesn't participate in things at the church when they feel it won't serve them or their needs. They come to take, not to give. It's the pastor who's more interested in growing his influence or growing his ministry than he is in actually serving and loving people. It's the mystery leader or the pastor who fights for attention towards himself. It isn't about dying for others. It's when people in the body or in the group fight for their own interests, fight for their own ministries. How come nobody pays attention to what I'm doing? And become better, bitter and resentful when everyone isn't on board with their agenda. That is self-interest, selfish ambition. It's looking to your own interests, as Paul says in verse 4. 
Paul says, do none of that. Again, we teach this in our families. Don't be consumed by looking to your own interests. Kids, you're going to have to share the markers. I know you want them. I know you have a special project in mind. And that's all you're consumed with right now. But there's other kids in the family. And they need the markers too, so we're going to share. Right? Like that's, we see selfish ambition and can see all the time in our kids, and then we see it in us. We go, oh. And Paul tells them to avoid this because that kind of thinking kills communities. When people in communities start fighting for their own way, it kills any kind of community, no matter what it is, whether it be a church, sports team, office, nation, marriage, whenever individual parties start fighting for their own interests, the whole group is destroyed. So my plea with you, with all of us as a church, if you want healthy relationships and joy in your relationships, wherever they exist, kill this attitude. Kill this part of you that is selfish and just wants your own way and just looks to your own interests. If you are able to kill that part of you, you will have joy in your relationships and peace. So you ask, how? What's the remedy? And the answer is humility. Humility is the antidote to selfishness, the antidote to individualism, the remedy to the diseases of selfish ambition and conceit. If we embrace humility, that will kill selfishness. I would say humility is the secret sauce to unity. So what does humility look like? We often get it wrong because we think humility looks like self-condemnation and self-deprecation and self-flagellation. That's humility. And actually, that's not humility. That kind of person, the Eeyore person, everything's wrong with me. And Woe is me, and I'm a, everything's terrible, and I'm a terrible person. And That person is not a humble person. Actually, those people who are most self-deprecating, who are most self-flagellating, those types of people are often the opposite of humble because they're only thinking about themselves and how pitiful they are. That's not humility. That's actually self-interest. Humility, as Paul describes it here, is the ability to look to the interests of others. Verses 3 and 4, But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves and look to the interests of others. Humility isn't the person who beats themselves up. Humility is that person who is able to invest in others and is concerned about them and asks how they're doing and wants what's best for others. Humility is other-centeredness. It's the ability to sacrifice yourself out of love for the sake of the other. Humility is an unnatural or even superhuman preoccupation with the benefit of others. That is humility. It's a person who lives for the benefit of other people. There's Jonathan Edwards' quote that says, Seek not to grow in knowledge chiefly for the sake of applause and to enable you to dispute with others, but seek it for the benefit of your souls. I think it's a great quote that's made better with a slight adjustment. I would say, seek not to grow in knowledge chiefly for the sake of applause and to enable you to dispute with others, but seek it for the benefit of others' souls. Whatever we do, you live for the sake of the other, whether it's growing in knowledge, growing 
in service growing, in maturity, in all of it, do it for the sake of others. This is why I love Christmas season. Uh, Make no bones about that. I really, truly love the Christmas season. Most of it wrapped up in nostalgia, probably. But I do love that we have kind of this culturally normed, almost enforced season of giving. It is a time when all of our world around us, whether it's Christmas or Hanukkah, whatever the holiday is, there's a, a season of gift giving that is accepted by all, that we are forced to invest in others. We're going to give to charities. We're going to give to people in our offices and friends and our families. We're going to give gifts. And we're going to be generous and lavish with one another. What an awesome thing. Concerns about materialism aside, wonderful that we have this season of interest in others and trying to figure out what would they like? What can I get them? I would love it if that kind of attitude pervaded the whole year. How would our communities be transformed if we had that attitude in us at all times? How can I benefit the other person? We have families healed. A church of worship. We practice the art of humble selflessness. And just like with unity, we ought to aspire to humility, not just for practical reasons, but for theological. Because just as with unity, humility describes our God. To be humble is to be theologically consistent. Just consider the fact that we are created beings. We were formed from the dust, created by God. By that very fact, we know that we don't have life in ourselves, that everything we have right from the beginning is a gift. We are born dependent. So we ought to be humble. We are created beings. Beyond that, we are fallen beings, sinful people, all of us affected by the fall, all of us contributing to the fall, all of us sinners, lost without Christ, all of us needing rescue. There is no room for any arrogance, no room for any pride, or anybody in this room, no matter who you are. All of you are sinners. Whether you believe in Christ or not, you know you are a sinner. You know you are not perfect. You know you've done wrong. All of us ought to be humble and recognize that. And then we look to Jesus Christ, our Lord, and how did he save us? Through a humble act, God taking on flesh, becoming one of us, stooping low in humility. The eternal God, born and laid in a manger. Lack of humility would be spiritually contrary to Christ. Spurgeon explains why we as Christians ought to be humble. Spurgeon talks about how all of us should be humble because all of us are given salvation by God's choice, by his calling of us. He chose to save us. Spurgeon says, I believe in the doctrine of election because I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I'm sure he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. 
And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. If we are Christians who believe in God saving us, we have to be humble because you cannot say we deserved it. We all know we have room to grow in humility, but how can we know? Like, what are, what are some good diagnostic tests or questions to know if you need to grow in humility? And I was thinking about this, and these all apply to me, right? So I was thinking about this just for myself, thinking that this might benefit you to run through some diagnostic questions to see if you have room to grow in humility or if there's any arrogance or, or pride within you that needs to be rooted out. So I'll ask you these questions and see if any of these apply to you, if you have room to grow in humility. One, do you constantly criticize the work of others rather than appreciate it? This might read like a Jeff Foxworthy bit. Like, if this is you, then you need to be humble. But... Do you regularly feel like you deserve better treatment from other people? Do you think other people are lucky to have you around? Do you think most things would be done better if you were the one doing them? Do you have an emotional response or an angry response just when others disagree with you? Do you have trouble giving praise to other people? Do you expect others to help you with your needs while seldom giving, giving time to help others? Do you welcome criticism or avoid it? When in an argument with your spouse, are you unable to understand, or even articulate why they might be upset with you. If you can't figure out why in the world that person would be upset with you, I would encourage you to embrace humility. When trials come in life, do you feel like everything is against you and that you deserve better? Do you think you can do most things on your own? You don't need help. That's not an exhaustive list. All sorts of questions you could ask yourself. But we find pretty quickly we lack humility and are often very arrogant and think of ourselves better than we ought. So how do you develop humility? Like how is, de- how is humility grown and developed? I'll throw something at you for your consideration. I think most arrogance comes from insecurity. I think most arrogance and self-interest and selfishness and selfish ambition and self-consumption, I think all of that comes from a place of insecurity and fear. This is just me theorizing here. Because I I think the selfish person who's consumed with selfish pursuits and all about themselves and wants everybody else to help them, I think that person fears that they're not going to be taken care of. And they're insecure in their own ability, they're insecure in their own standing, They're insecure that somebody loves them and cares for them and accepts them. So they pursue all those things by focusing on themselves. And I think the cure to insecurity is the gospel. When you realize that God himself has sent his son to die for your sins, to grant you life, to give you peace with him, that you have life forever wrapped up in God. At that point, when you fully embrace that, the insecurity kind of melts away. 
when you realize that you have what you need in God himself, that you have acceptance, that you are loved, that you have peace, that you are forgiven, that you don't need to fight for your life anymore because it's already been granted to you in Jesus Christ. And when you make that realization and embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you are secure and accepted in him, you no longer have to fight for yourself, and now you can use those energies to serve others. It's why the gospel, I think, is the key to humility. In fact, the only way to true humility. Because it's the only way to true security where we know we have life, we know all things are taken care of in Christ, so now we can use whatever energy we have to serve others. And I think humility comes from meditating on the gospel of Jesus Christ and who God is. That humility is a fruit of the gospel and leads to unity. how humble unity is birthed when you embrace the sacrificial and selfless love of God in Jesus Christ. So now let's go back to verse 1. I did this at the end for a reason. We've seen Paul's sentiment that requests unity, his desire for joy that they would be united, the posture that promotes unity, which is humility. Now in verse 1 we see the condition that necessitates unity. Here, Paul describes the condition that necessitates unity. If these conditions exist in the church, then the church must be united and humbly united. Verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, make my joy complete. Here, Paul is explaining the condition that must result in unity, the condition that necessitates unity. There's an if statement here. If, then. If this is true, then this must be also. If this exists, then this must happen. We have a a book at our home, kids' book, called If You Give a Mouse a Cookie. Right? You know this book. And it starts with, if you give a mouse a cookie, he's going to ask for a glass of milk. And then the next page... When you give him the milk, he'll probably ask you for a straw. And then it goes on a series of conditional statements. If this happens, then this happens. And it does this, this. And then then it actually circles back around, and then he'll ask for a cookie. And that's how it ends. But it's a series of domino statements, if-then conditions. Here is an if-then condition. If these exist in the church, if this is true of you, then this must happen. And when Paul says this, he's assuming it must be true. This isn't a question in his mind. He's assuming that these if conditions are there and are present. He knows that this is part of your church. Your four characteristics of the church that, that must lead to unity. Paul says if there's any encouragement in Christ, if Christ has encouraged you or compelled you to do anything, if, if you have your faith in him, if you're standing in him, if you believe in who Jesus is and have all of your trust in him, then... You must live in humble unity. If there's any comfort from love, if God has showered his love and grace upon you and you are comforted by that and when you participate in the church, when you worship at home, you know and experience the presence of the love of God, if that means anything to you, then you must live in humble unity. If there's any participation in the Spirit, 
And the word that Paul uses there is that great Greek word koinonia, which means fellowship. If you're, you're bound together, you're woven together. This is not just attending church or attending a building. This is your lives are intertwined as a congregation. The Spirit has given you life together. If Spirit has created you to be a community bound together, if there's any participation in the Spirit, then you must live in humble unity. And if there's any affection or sympathy or compassion, if you have any love for one another, if you feel something for one another, if you see your fellow church members and you have an affection for them and your heart hurts for them when things happen wrong. Again, I'll go back to the Greek word. There's a great Greek word that all of us should know for compassion here. It's splankna. I just like saying it. There's no deep meaning. It's just a great splankna, which means like an affection from the guts. It's a gut-level affection. If you have that, if that is in the church, and Paul assumes that it is, he knows it is in the Philippian church, if that is there, then it must lead to humble unity. One commentator, William Taylor, calls this the genetic code of the church. It's in their DNA. It's part of who you are. It's something that distinguishes the church. These things mark you out. Uh, there, there are certain things that are cultural markers. If you see them or hear them, you know where that person's from. So if somebody says, go get my car and go to Dunkin' Donuts, like, you know where that person's from, Right? That's a Bostonian. And if you heard my mom say pa, and that's pie, but if you heard her say pa, like you know she's from the South. There are certain cultural markers or accents. These things are the accents of the church. So when you see them, you go, oh, that is a spirit-given, God-loving, Christ-encouraged church. They are the fertile soil in which loving, sacrificial, selfless, humble unity grows and flourishes. And I'd ask, are these things present in our church? I think they are. I know they are. I've experienced them recently, this morning. Can we grow in them? Yeah. By God's grace. There's one thing I want you to notice as we close. I think that's key to all of this. Notice how Paul encourages humble unity in this church. Notice his method. Paul doesn't just say, you idiots, be humble and united. Give them a command and then leave and say, now do that. It's not how Paul operates. What does he do? pastoral and affectionate, make my joy complete. But he roots the command in the condition. Here's what I want to see. And this will happen if these things are true and they already are. You see what he's doing? He's rooting this command in something that he already knows to be true of the church. He's saying, God has already been at work in you doing these things. And in light of God's already present work in you, in light of God's grace that has already been operative in the church, God has already showered his affection and love on you. He's already grown you in all these ways. And if that's there, then following from God's grace, live in humble unity. He, he grounds his appeal for unity and humility in what God has already done among them. If he just said, be humble, 
That might be daunting. It might be burdensome. Man, I'm not humble. That's hard. How do I have the humility of Jesus Christ? That's impossible. I can't do that. But Paul doesn't just say that. He says, be humble because God's already at work in you doing it. Don't be discouraged. It's not a lofty call. It's not too far from you. In fact, humility is the necessary consequence of what God has already done in you. It has to come out of you because of what God has already done, giving you encouragement and love and sympathy with one another. It's what God's doing in the church. So we asked in the beginning, what is the reason for Christ-like humility? We have an answer. The reason here in Philippians for Christ-like humility is so that the church can grow and prosper in unity. And because God is already at work laying the foundation for humility. So what the Lord does with his churches, he grows them. And humble unity. It's dependent ultimately upon his work. And we will see next week the example we have for humility, the source of our humility, and where that power comes from. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you are at work in us. And Lord, we can honestly say if you were not at work in us, if you, if you were not growing us, that we would have no hope, but we, we do have hope because of who you are and how gracious you are in uniting us as a church, giving us your spirit, and grounding us and saving us in your Son. Lord, I pray out of that reality that already is that we would grow to be humble followers of you, not just looking to our own interests, as it is easy to do, but looking to the interests of others, serving others, loving others, as you have called and equipped us. Lord, I pray that you would empower us to serve and love one another by your grace and your power and your spirit and your son. May you equip us each day to love and serve you. Amen.